Good morning. I opted not to wear a box for you this morning. <laughs> but we have enjoyed those Box Bob videos, um, so thanks for enjoying them with us. <clears throat> when I was a young girl, <clears throat> my grandma on my mom's side lived across the street from the church that we attended as a family. Now, my family was very involved in the church. My mom was a choir director. My dad served on various church committees, and my grandma was no different. Um, she sang in the choir, and she was a member of the Altar Guild. Now, the Altar Guild, as I understand it, is a group of people who got the communion table ready each week, and they set the table for communion. Um, we also, they make, they make sure that everything is in place on the altar. Um, I grew up in a Lutheran church where there was a permanent altar behind at the front of the church, and there were candles and liturgical cloths and all kinds of different things to attend to. So that was her role. So since my grandma lived across the street from the church, it was easy for her to stop by on a Saturday and make sure things were taken care of for the next Sunday. So sometimes I got to spend the night at my grandma's apartment on Saturday night so I would go along with her to get things ready. Now thinking back to my childhood, my time with, this time with my grandma strikes me as one of those times in my faith journey where someone invited me along to come and see, to come and see what God was like. I wasn't told I was too young, and I wasn't told that I didn't belong there, but I was invited to walk with my grandma across the street and learn about God through the ways that she was serving at our church. I've thought back to this time with her and these experiences, and I think it was my grandma who taught me about the holiness and the awe and the wonder that we should have in worshiping God. See, as she prepared the items each week, everything was sacred. The ladies on the altar guild even wore gloves to do the work. My grandma also taught me that we could be close to this holy God, and that everyone was welcome in God's presence. She let me stand right alongside her as she did her work, and she, in that sacred space, I learned that God had come to be close to us all, and that he welcomed children in his presence. In today's scripture reading, we see a beautiful picture of what happens when people are invited to come and see who Jesus is. This morning, I want to guide you through the passage and highlight for you three things, three things that I think play a key role in our relationship with Jesus. First, someone declares to us who Jesus is. There's a declaration. Next, we begin a journey of following Jesus. And finally, there's an invitation. We invite others along on this journey of faith. So our passage today begins with a declaration. We hear from John the Baptist who Jesus is. John tells his disciples to look. There is the Lamb of God. You see in the verse right there, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now this isn't the first time that John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. We heard in the passage that Pastor Stacy preached last week that John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, John is pointing to what Jesus will do at the end of John's gospel, that he'll take away the sin of the world through his death on the cross. For John's audience, though, this imagery would have also brought up Old Testament imagery of the Lamb. In Genesis, we have the Lamb that God provided for Abraham when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. And in Isaiah 53, we read about God's servant who's led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
And all of God's people would have been familiar of the story of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12, the lamb whose blood was spread over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the homes of the Israelites and not take their firstborn sons. All of these images of the lamb would come to mind for John's disciples as he points out Jesus as the lamb of God. So when John points out the Lamb of God, let's look at the response of the disciples. Their immediate response, it says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. You see, as they follow Jesus, they have to leave the teacher that they had been following, John the Baptist. And many of us can identify with the characters in the story at this point, with these two disciples. You see, these two disciples are ordinary people, and they've been seeking out something greater than themselves. They've been following John the Baptist, and now they move and they start following this Jesus, the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist suggests to them that they give Jesus this closer look. So at some point in our lives, or even perhaps as you listen today, someone has suggested to you that you give Jesus a closer look. And this declaration this announcing the Lamb of God, it's an event that kindles the disciples' curiosity about Jesus. See, when they hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that's what they need to physically begin to follow Jesus. Now, they have a deeper following. They follow with their feet. But that deeper following that leads to discipleship, that starts with some questions. So after the declaration from John the Baptist about who Jesus is, there begins this time of following time when the new disciples begin to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, and to spend time with Jesus. This time of following, as we said, it starts with questions. And the disciples aren't afraid to ask a question right back to Jesus. So if we look at the passage in John 1, um, Jesus' question is, what do you want? And other translations, they say, what are you looking for? Um, And this question, where Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? It can be looked at on two different levels. So on a literal level, Jesus is asking them, what do you want? Why are you following me? Why are you here? But there's a deeper level where Jesus is asking them, what are they seeking as they come to follow him? And as we take our own steps toward Jesus, and as we begin to spend time with Jesus on a deeper level, We find ourselves face to face with this same question. What do we want with Jesus? What do we want from Jesus? What are we looking for as we follow Jesus? And it's a question that comes up again and again throughout our lives. What are our deepest longings? How do we expect that Jesus is going to meet us there? Now, the disciples' return question seems simple at first. It almost doesn't match. They ask, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So he says, what do you want? And they say, where are you staying? Seems simple. But the word that's used in this question is a Greek word that can be translated as abide. So the question would read more like, where are you abiding? And they're asking a question on two levels as well. Um, Practically, they need a place to rest. If they're going to follow Jesus, they need to know where he's staying because they're going to follow him and stay with him there too. Now, whether they know it or not, they're also asking at this point where Jesus permanently abides. Where does he find his rest? Um, To be his disciples, they're going to need to stay in Jesus' presence always. 
They're going to need to learn from him. They're going to need to be connected to the same source of life that he's connected to. They need to abide in the same place where he is abiding, where he's receiving life. And the writer of John is going to use the whole gospel to show us where Jesus abides. And I'm guessing that in the weeks ahead, too, we'll hear that word again. We'll hear that abide word. And we'll see throughout this time where Jesus abides. Now, as the disciples have asked, where are you staying? Practically, the only way they're going to know where he's staying is if they follow him to that place. So they've got these questions to begin their journey. What do you want? Where are you staying? And then there's an invitation. Jesus tells them, come, he replied, and you will see. See, Jesus doesn't give them all the answers right then and there when they ask their questions. As they follow and trust, answers to their questions will emerge, and they'll have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and where he abides. Being a disciple and following Jesus is about this relationship that we have with Jesus. The disciples are going to find what they're looking for and who Jesus is by being in relationship with him. In the Bible passage, we do have more than two disciples who follow, though. It starts with two people, but Andrew goes home and gets his brother, Simon Peter, and then Simon Peter begins to follow. And then on the next day, Jesus calls Philip to follow him, and Philip follows, but he also goes home and finds Nathaniel, who begins to follow. You see, there's a multiplying effect that Jesus has on these disciples. This is an image from a business model of how the multiplying effect might work, but it fits in this situation as well. Because if you imagine Jesus is at the center, he's invited some disciples to come and see and follow. And those who are following, they go to their friends and their neighbors, and they invite others to come along and see and follow with them. And Jesus' invitation has multiplied. Now the passage where Philip tells Nathaniel that they have found Jesus is a little unusual. So I wanted to spend a few brief moments looking at this next text where Nathaniel is invited to follow. In John 1, 45 and 46, it says that Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Now, this passage is interpreted in a variety of different ways. Some think the comment reflects a belief that Nazareth, which is seated in the heart of Galilee, wasn't as religiously pure as other Jewish communities. Now, some think that Nathaniel's comment shows his own religious prejudice, because there really aren't any prophecies of the Messiah that mention Nazareth. So he's thinking, this can't be the Messiah. There's no prophecies that would say he's from Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel may be thinking either of those things in his question, but it's his willingness to go and see Jesus with the questions that leads him to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Now, Nathaniel, he doesn't keep his doubt or his skepticism or his question a secret. He isn't afraid to speak them. He brings them to Jesus, and let's look at how Jesus responds. In John 1:47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Other translations have this as, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him with his questions as someone who has no deceit, no guile, no trickery, no duplicity. 
Jesus is using no guile for a skeptic who's willing to be honest that he is a skeptic, but Nathaniel still isn't convinced. So in John 1.48, we read, How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, <clears throat> Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You see those words, under the fig tree, connect to a Hebrew word for branch. And that word for branch connects to a prophecy in Zechariah. And that word for branch connects to the prophecy in Isaiah 11, that a branch will grow from the stump of Jesse. And some scholars also think that that word for branch sounds very similar to the word for Nazareth. And maybe that's how those things came together in Nathaniel's mind. But it seems likely that this connection of under the fig tree, of the branch, is what brings everything into focus for Nathaniel. What spurs him to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel. You know, to me this says that following Jesus doesn't mean we have to follow blindly. We're free to come to Jesus with our questions. Jesus welcomes our questions. We don't have any promises that they're going to be answered in this life or by any certain time, but I do believe that we're given moments with Jesus when things come into a clearer focus, where we follow him more closely because we see that indeed he is the Son of God. And finally, what naturally flows out of this time of declaration and following is a time of invitation, a time when we invite others to join us as we follow, a time when we say to other people, come and see this Jesus that I have met. There are a lot of, things, a lot of times in life when we get excited about something and then we tell other people about it, right? So they can try it too. <clears throat> Sometimes it's a new restaurant. We get excited about that. There are a lot of people who have told me I need to try the chicken at Raising Cane's. <laughs> so sometimes it's a book. I know an author, Allison Richmond. She writes fic fiction books that I love, and a good friend had told me about her. So whenever someone's looking for a book, I tell them about her books. Now, sometimes we rush to tell other people about a movie that we saw and loved. I know a lot of kids and adults who saw Sing 2 over this vacation time, and I know a lot of our youth and our families have seen the new Spider-Man movie. Help me out. What's the name of that? Spider-Man, a new... No Way Home. There you go. See, I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's good because so many people have told me about these movies, and so many people have told me how much they love it. And all of these experiences are similar to what happens in this passage, but what happens in this passage is so much more life-changing than a restaurant or a book or a movie. And we're willing to share how excited we are about those things, isn't it? Shouldn't we be willing to share how excited we are about the transformation we've experienced in Christ? The disciples encounter Jesus, and they have this transformative experience that leads them to tell other people. And then others are invited to come and see and have a transformative experience as well. The story of when Jesus calls his first disciples, it's written differently in John than it's written in the other three Gospels. We don't have this story of fishermen by the water, where Jesus calls to them and says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen that way. It just means that John has given us a different focus. Most of the time in John's account of the calling of the disciples, the disciples end up following Jesus largely because of the witness of one person to another. 
This personal account and this witness to who Jesus is, it happens three times in this short passage. We saw the multiplying effect that it had because John the Baptist bears witness to two of the disciples, Andrew and an unnamed disciple, and they leave their place in following John to follow this new teacher, Jesus. Then Andrew, who's begun to follow Jesus, he bears witness to his brother Peter, and Peter joins in as a disciple. And later, Jesus calls Philip to follow him in the way that we're used to hearing. Jesus speaks, follow me. And then he, Philip goes back to his hometown, and he bears witness to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, with all his questions, comes along and begins to follow Jesus. This happens three times in this short passage. Now, in this first account, the disciples who are being called are all men. But women will become disciples and witness to Jesus as well. And just because they aren't named at this point doesn't mean that they aren't there. They are named later also. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well in John 4. Jesus talks with her, and despite the cultural barriers that should be there, he reveals to her that he knows her and everything about her. And she comes to know him and name him as a Messiah. And after this life-changing encounter, in a similar way as the disciples, she goes back and she bears witness to her village. In John 4, 28 and 29, she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? You hear that language of come, see. Many from her village went out to see Jesus for herself, for themselves. And in John 439, we read that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. The Samaritan woman bears witness as well. She says to her village, come and see. And many begin following because of her invitation. And on that very first Easter morning in John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene is the one who bears witness to the resurrection. She finds the empty tomb and she runs to tell Peter and the other disciples that it's empty. Come and see, it's empty. She meets the risen Jesus in the garden and she runs back to tell the disciples that she has seen the Lord. And as she bears witness, the invitation is for the disciples to believe that this has happened as well. And if you want to look up that story, you'll find it in John 20. And you can see how the disciples responded to her witness, her invitation to come and see. Because when we bear witness, when we tell what Jesus has done, it always comes with an invitation to come and see. It's not something that we force on people or we try to manipulate them into. And we're not trying to trick anyone into believing. But like the disciples in our passage... And the woman at the well and Mary Magdalene, our lives have been so changed by this encounter that we can't help but share in the hope that the life of another is going to be transformed as well. This invitation to come and see what God has done is vital to our life as disciples. Not only does it open up the opportunity so that we can speak a declaration to others, and not only does it open up the opportunity for others to enter God's kingdom and follow, but the invitation itself, as we speak it, it's an invitation and an acknowledgement. There's always more to see as we abide in Jesus. We say, come and see, and we know he's not done yet. There is still more he's going to do. So what opportunities do you have to make Jesus known? 
What has happened in your own life that can serve as an invitation to others to come and see what Jesus has done? People are going to come to know Christ as a Savior through your invitation. This is true in our own families as well. Have you invited your family members, your children and your grandchildren, to come and see what your faith is about? My own time spent with my grandma alongside the altar at church, it sticks in my memory as a powerful moment of my own faith journey. And now while the words that she said to me about her faith were important, it's the invitation to come and see with her that was significant in my own journey of discipleship. So one final caution. As we think about how we might invite others to come and see Jesus, it can be tempting to think that we have to be Jesus for them. After all, Jesus became flesh incarnate to the world. We just named this at Christmas again. And when it was time to ascend into heaven, he asked his disciples to carry on his work so that they would do even greater things through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a poem where the actual documentation is unsure, but it's often credited to Teresa of Avila. And it says, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours, Yours are the eyes through which to look out Christ's compassion to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless men now. From this poem and writings like this, we often figure that it's our responsibility to be Christ to the world. And you've heard the saying that you might be the only Jesus that some people ever meet. Roger Nishioka has something to say about this common assumption, though. And who is the Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka? Well, before I worked here at ECC, I worked at a Presbyterian church in Evanston for eight years. And I had the opportunity to learn from some incredible pastors and church educators while I served there. And I was part of the Association of Presbyterian Church Educators, or APSI for short. And they brought in incredible minds at their annual event. And the Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka was one of those minds. In a nutshell, he's worked for the Presbyterian Church, and he's taught seminary at Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta, and he currently serves as a pastor and church educator. He's the son of a retired Presbyterian minister. He was born in Honolulu, and he was raised in Seattle at the Japanese Presbyterian Church. Now, in the commentary I read, Dr. Roger Nishioka points out that we were never asked to be the Messiah ourselves. When I was in high school, and maybe a lot of you remember, it was popular to wear those WWJD bracelets. But Roger suggests that instead of asking what would Jesus do, we should ask what would John the Baptist do? Because John points out who Jesus is, and John tells his followers, and John points the way to Jesus so that others can come and recognize him. So I'm going to read you a story that the Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka tells in Feasting on the Word. And I quote, this is his story. While I fully understood what Teresa and the Apostle Paul are saying to us, that we are to live lives that embody Christ, it is equally important that we not take on some messianic identity that says we are Christ to the world. A couple of years ago, a good friend and colleague here at the seminary, who was concerned about my schedule and commitments and hectic pace and looking tired, insisted on taking me out to lunch and said it was urgent. When we sat down at the table, I asked what was going on. 
She told me she had some good news for me. Perplexed, I asked her what the good news was. She smiled and said, I want you to know the Messiah has come. Now I was thoroughly confused, so she told me she had even better news for me. You are not him. The real danger in a distorted incarnational theology is that we come to believe that we, if we truly are Christ's body in the world, then if the world is going to be saved, we have to do it. End quote. Again, Dr. Nishioka says, the real danger in a distorted incarnational theology is that we come to believe that if we truly are Christ's body in the world, then if the world is going to be saved, we have to do it. John the Baptist doesn't try to save the world. John calls attention to Jesus, he declares who Jesus is, and he directs people to follow Jesus. He doesn't feel a need to be Jesus himself, and neither should we. Through our invitation, as we ask others to come and see, we can call attention to Jesus. We can declare who Jesus is, and we can point to Jesus as the one to follow. So I want you to think about this morning and throughout your week, what opportunities do you have to invite others to come and see this Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and who walks with us always? Will you pray with me and we'll close our time together? Gracious God, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you that you have come to be with us and to be close to us. And we thank you for all those who have invited us to come and see. God, we thank you for those in our lives who have declared to us who you are. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear the declarations of your power and of your kingdom, Lord, that we would understand you on a deeper level. Lord, we pray that as we follow you, we would learn more about what it means to abide with you and to rest in your presence and to continually be filled with your source of life. And God, we pray earnestly that you would give us the opportunity to invite others to come and see. God, where there are moments in our lives where we're fearful of expressing what we think and what we believe, Lord, remind us of the power of our own story and remind us of how you have saved us and how you have brought us to you and how we have a story to share. And we pray, Lord, that as we invite others to come and see, they will see your power, they will see your glory, and their lives will be transformed as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.